You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. ISIS may be under pressure, but so are its adversaries in the civilized world's intelligence and security services. Old malware learns some new tricks. Taiwan deals with an apparent case of ATM jackpotting. U.S. court rulings have implications for privacy and liability. SAP and Cisco round out a week of patching. Some security startups get infusions of venture capital. And augmented reality continues to go global as Pokemon players try to catch them all. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary and weekend review for Friday, July 15, 2016. The tragic Bastille Day massacre in Nice rendered all the more tragic as warnings of danger police distributed through social media failed to reach the victims in time, has prompted much introspection among intelligence and law enforcement services. In brief, increasing pressure on the ground is apparently driving ISIS not only toward more dispersed out-of-area attacks, and the U.S. FBI director warns that more may be coming, but also toward renewed aspirations for an aggressive online presence and cyber attack capability. Recruiting is turning toward less sophisticated prospects in Southeast and Central Asia and to criminal snitches, mostly in Western Europe, who've been discovered and turned by jihadists. Loss of territory in the Levant appears to be making training more difficult, but the untrained can still be inspired or compromised. Avira warns that Lockheed ransomware is now able to encrypt victims' files without needing to connect to a command and control server. And FireEye notes that an IE exploit has been added to the Neutrino kit. It appears to have been reverse-engineered from a proof-of-concept researchers at Theory prepared in June. Neutrino is widely used by criminals, having largely superseded the earlier and essentially defunct Angler exploit kit. Taiwan's first bank was hit early this week by criminals who made off with about $2 million. The criminals were masked, as bank robbers should be, but they held up ATMs and not tellers. Dozens of machines are said to have been hit. The crooks use some form of connected device, possibly a phone, to trigger three different malware files that, as CNN Money reports, were instructed to spit out the cash and then delete evidence. How the machines were infected remains unclear, but the malware was there to enable a quick physical interaction. We heard from Craig Young, computer security researcher for Tripwire's Vulnerability and Exposures Research Team, VERT, who sees the case as a likely instance of jackpotting. Young says, quote, From the description, it sounds like these thieves likely had installed malware ahead of time, enabling a wireless connection to jackpot the ATMs. It's also possible that a vulnerable wireless service could allow unauthorized access from hackers. End quote. Investigation is ongoing. Several court cases this week send decidedly mixed signals to the cybersecurity community. Microsoft won a round in its fight to keep data secured in Ireland away from U.S. investigators. 
but other decisions suggest some expansive interpretations of what counts as computer crime and how far civil liability for online activity can stretch. We'll hear a bit later from our partners at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, who will take us through other recent rulings on privacy, home computing, and the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. Congratulations to the winners in the latest U.S. Cyber Challenge round being recognized today in Delaware. And in other matters related to the health of the cyber sector, we spoke to Eli Sugarman of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. He described their foundation's cyber initiative. For most of the foundation's 50 years, we've had a grant-making interest in, in some aspect of national security. Most recently, that was preventing nuclear proliferation uh, via our nuclear security initiative. And when our new uh, president joined the foundation about three, four years ago, he started looking for emerging threats that, that, that were relevant for national security, but that were a little more um, on the leading edge that, that philanthropies should be focused on, but that weren't at the time. And after doing quite a bit of, of research and talking to a lot of experts in the field um, settled upon cybersecurity as one that really is affecting society and, and every American and every global citizen more and more, and that it really demands long-term attention in the way that, that philanthropies can, can provide. The Hewlett Foundation's Cyber Initiative is a five-year, $65 million grant-making effort. And so our three biggest grantees are Stanford University, MIT, and UC Berkeley. And so we've made those three anchor grants at three leading research universities really to, to anchor what we believe you know, needs to, to sort of be created, which is a sort of multidisciplinary field. And so each university is creating an interdisciplinary center that pulls together computer science and engineering with policy, law, economics, business social sciences to do two things, to really pursue research that's very policy relevant, that's anchored in reality and real world problems. And then secondly, um, not to suggest it's less important, but but also, you know, equally, if not more important, is, is education. They're trying to create new educational programs that, again, are multidisciplinary and give students the technical knowledge they need, as well as the non-technical um, overlay, so that when they enter the workforce, they can work in government, they can go work in industry, they can work in academia, and again, they can translate and understand the different sides of these issues. Cybersecurity is a relatively young, rapidly evolving field, and Eli Sugarman says it's important that the foundation take an ideologically neutral approach. We need to fund lots of different viewpoints because we don't have an institutional viewpoint, that, that we want to fund voices on the left, voices on the right, technical voices, social sciences voices, you know, voices from the hacker community, voices that are more from the vendor community, and, and lift those up and put them in the, into the debate and let the marketplace of ideas and policymakers choose what the best outcomes are because that's, that's their job. We think that we can help create the foundation for a mature debate and ecosystem, but that it's not our role to pick the winner and to pick the right answer on a policy question. And so we fund right of center think tanks. We fund left of center think tanks. We are trying to bring more diverse and new voices to the debate to make sure that they're inclusive and that all the different aspects of these various issues are touched upon. We're saying that, listen, different fundamental values are intention. And the real hard work is rolling up your sleeves, getting in there and figuring out how to manage those trade-offs. The cyber initiative has been underway for about two years now, and Sugarman says they've discovered some interesting challenges along the way. It's really hard to build trust among the different groups who play in this field in this space, given how acrimonious a lot of the conversations are about whatever 
timely policy issue is. And so trying to find ways to say, how do I bring together the civil liberties community with the national security community, with the vendor community, with the academic community, with other key stakeholders, um, and really build trust and connective tissue such that they want to work together to solve problems, as opposed to just blaming each other for, for being the problem or labeling them, you're from that other tribe and I don't want to talk to you. Doing that is really hard because it really depends on individuals who have credibility in other other stakeholder groups and want to reach across the aisle and really want to work together. And so we can do that in small curated gatherings, but it's really hard to scale that. And, you, and to really solve this problem, you need to scale it. So that's that's an area that I don't think – we knew it would be tra- challenging. I don't think we fully appreciated how challenging it would be. So right now we're, we're starting to you know bring on a consultant and an evaluation to figure out – what are models from other fields that have been built that may be relevant? How are other ways to build trust at scale and, and to really learn and do better at that? The other thing that we've learned is that trying to attract funders, whether foundations, um, you know, corporate philanthropy, high net worth individuals, um, it's tough because a lot of people think that government and industry alone will solve these problems, which which we firmly do not believe. We believe they're key partners, but but that there's a, a critical role here for philanthropy. So it's it's been hard to catalyze more funding. Part of it is I think people just assume government and industry are going to fix it. If you go to other foundations, sometimes they don't have the existing expertise on these issues, so they find it a little daunting to, to, to dive into this new area. And really making that case for why resources from outside of government and companies need to come online for this, that's been challenging as well. And so that, that's an area that we're increasingly focused on. I asked Eli Sugarman how the Hewlett Foundation will measure success. We're just trying to prove the concept, to, to sort of serve as that, that funder on the sort of front leading edge to then show what's possible and get others to come in and and partner with us or take a different approach based upon what we've learned that success for us is not solving this problem by ourselves because we don't think we can we're we're sort of a small player here but really what success is is catalyzing that that broader movement um, that we're trying to achieve we're agnostic as to the specific policy outcomes but really just want to create a healthier ecosystem and so any way that we can be supportive you know we're always happy to talk about that and and always in search of new creative ideas um, because we completely you know will be the first to admit that that we don't have all the answers that we rely upon our grantees and the experts we we support and partner with they're the real experts they're the ones who do the real work and we need them to lead the way and, and really help come up with with all the creative ideas and all the great work that needs to be funded. That's Eli Sugarman. He's the program officer of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation Cyber Initiative. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. Joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Um, ben, interesting article uh, came by about uh, the federal court's ruling that the Fourth Amendment does not protect your home computer. Uh, my response to this was, really? <laughs> what, uh, what can you tell us about this case? So I think it's a very consequential case. Uh, the case is United States v. Madish, and it took place uh, at a district court in the Fourth Circuit down in Virginia. And it centers around an FBI investigation of this website, Playpen, uh, which is a child pornography website. And uh, or it, it's a tour hidden services site, so the government had to use NIT to uh, track the site and ended up tracking this user. They arrested this user on child pornography charges, and the user attempted to suppress the evidence based on a Fourth Amendment claim that searching this person's home computer violates his reasonable expectation of privacy. Under the Fourth Amendment, if a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy, then it is a search for Fourth Amendment purposes and is subject to Fourth Amendment protection. What this court tried to argue is that this person did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy using a Tor Hidden Services site because in order to sign up for this technology, he had to submit his IP address. And under what's called the third party doctrine, if you submit identifying information that you know would be submitted to a third party, for instance, the numbers you dialed, you know that those are going to be submitted to the phone company, then you forfeit your expectation of privacy under the Fourth Amendment. So the court held that there was no search for Fourth Amendment uh, purposes, and that even if there was, there was a warrant based on probable cause. So, uh, but, uh, I mean, using your telephone system analogy, I, th- I would reasonably expect that, uh, you know, the metadata of my phone call would be, uh, would, would be subject to, to being... Uh you know, uh, gotten with maybe perhaps without a warrant, but not the actual, you know, not a recording of my phone call itself. Uh, how does that analogy extend to this? It seems to me like perhaps the FBI would know that uh, that this person was interacting with whatever website he was, but then to go in and and uh, go, you know, search through his computer in his home seems like a stretch to me. Is that is is that a is that a good line of reasoning? I think that's a reasonable inference. This sort of reminds me of a concurrence that Justice Sotomayor made in a case called United States v. Jones. And she talked about that when this third-party doctrine uh, was ratified early in the 1980s, it was a very different technological landscape. And there wasn't much one could reveal in the metadata submitted to the phone companies. It was just a number. Now, your use of technology, even if it's not the content of communications or the content of conversations, can actually reveal a lot of private and personal details, medical histories, personal interests, political affiliations, just by knowing an IP address, for example. 
So I think the court in this case misapplied the law, and I would suspect that the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals would probably reverse this decision. And if it got up to, Supreme, to the Supreme Court, I think it would be a very interesting test of whether Sotomayor's concurrence, which noted that the third-party doctrine may indeed be outdated in light of modern technology, whether it would still apply. All right, Ben Yellen, more to come. We'll keep an eye on this one. Thanks for joining us. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. Say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. With identity orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge, and they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. A week of patching is rounded out with fixes from SAP and Cisco. SAP has issued 36 patches, two of which the enterprise software maker rated high priority. Cisco addressed security issues in its Cisco IOS, IOS XR, ASR 5000, WebEx Meeting Server, and Cisco Meeting Server. In other industry news, Delta Risk Cybersecurity Services announced plans to acquire Allied InfoSecurity. Denver-based CyberGRX emerged from stealth with $9 million in Series A funding led by Allegis Capital. Bay Dynamics received $23 million in Series B funding earlier this week. That's a correction from the number we reported yesterday. At the Cynet Innovation Summit in New York yesterday, we heard of much interest on connecting security companies with investors and government agencies. A few of the points speakers made are worth noting here, as we hear of some successful and innovative startups. Those who buy from and invest in startups offer this advice. Young companies succeed if they can execute, if they're differentiated from the very large field of competitors, and if they have market space for what they're offering. And as one panelist put it, when asked what counts as success, quote, success is building a sustainable business, not how much money you raise or who's on your board. We'll have a full report on Cynet's 2016 Innovation Summit this coming Monday. And finally, Pokemon Go shows no signs of flagging popularity. Its inexorable long march toward our newly augmented reality continues apace. TechCrunch reports that the game's revenue per user and its retention rates are double, that's right, double, the industry average. The game has reached the UK and its purveyors say that they'll go global once they've released it in two or three more countries. It's interesting to us, of course, not because we all play Pokemon, well, okay, some of our staff might, but others seem to prefer Crash Bandicoot, but because any widely distributed app presents an increased attack surface and ample opportunity for fraud. Even the U.S. Senate, well, okay, so it's mostly Senator Al Franken, is concerned. Pokemon Go's security risks remain intensely debated. 
Whether the privacy issues that cropped up from the inadvertently extensive privileges the game initially assumed have been fully addressed or not, players are strongly cautioned to be alert for bogus apps and pirated versions, and to look both ways in physical space before crossing streets. Augmented reality isn't yet so augmented that it will protect you from a smash-up. Let's be safe out there, friends. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K Cyberwire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.